Good morning, church. Let's go outside and have church. What do you say? We're going to have to build an amphitheater, maybe. Uh, Ethan, I left the remote back there. The funny thing is, we, we're calling this the prodigal clicker this morning because we left it at Herring Auditorium a couple of weeks ago, and it just made its way back. So that's good. Uh, let us, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we open the word together. Father, we thank you for this glorious day, and uh, again, just a beautiful reminder of your grace in and out of every season as the sun comes back and the warmth with it and the snow melts away. Uh, we rejoice, uh, Lord, for uh, just a beautiful morning. We rejoice also that we get to um, come together and to sing boldly the truths that we know from your scriptures and we get to do that without fear um, or without any hesitancy. We thank you, too, that you are a God who has revealed yourself, that we're not left to puzzle about who you are, but you have revealed yourself in your word and through your given Son, and that the Holy Spirit uh, brings these truths, uh, illuminates these truths to us. So we thank you, Lord, for um, the fact that we can know you because you've revealed yourself to us. I pray, Lord, that as we study your word now, that you would enrich um, our hearts and you would indeed renew our minds. Uh, so guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are starting a new series. Uh, uh, we are going to be going through Second Peter. So if you'll open your Bibles to Second Peter, uh, and the title of this series is Back to Basics. Back to Basics. And the title of the message this morning... Frankenstein faith. How about that? Frankenstein faith. Um, we are starting this new series, and uh, first and second Peter. Some of you may be going, "Wait a minute! Why are we starting at second Peter? What happened to first? Well, we did first Peter like you know six or seven years ago, and now we're getting around to the sequel. So I'm sure you all remember everything about first Peter. Uh, but actually, these, these two books, these two letters form a really interesting tandem here. Both are, of course, believed to be written by the Apostle Peter. And uh, he is our impulsive, somewhat outspoken disciple. Uh, he is, of course, the one who actually walked on water, at least for a little bit, until he didn't, you know. And he is, at the same time, the one who, in the garden, produced the sword, and uh, in the interest of trying to protect his Lord Jesus Christ, he lopped off the ear of the servant, Malchus, servant to the high priest. He is the one who made the great profession of faith after Jesus gave a really tough teaching. And he said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of, the, of eternal life, and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. But he's also the one that a few moments later took Jesus aside and rebuked him for talking about coming suffering. Peter is the one, uh, one of a few that were honored to be on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus when he was in a glorified state there when the glory of the Lord kind of fell upon him. And yet, uh, even though he received that honor, just a few, uh, few weeks later, Peter would deny even knowing Christ, even though he had seen his glory. So something about Peter, I, I, if I'm honest with you, I relate to him strongly. When I see him in the scriptures, I see myself, and I rejoice that God is gracious to us. <laughs> and so I learn a lot uh, from him. He is kind of every man's disciple, so to speak. Um, 
wanting to do well for the Lord, but often falling short, and I relate to that. But here we have Peter at the end of his life, uh, writing a couple of letters to the church. And of all things, of all messages, what Peter is writing about is our erratic Peter is now writing to the church to encourage them, to ground them, to uh, encourage them to a steadfast faith. Peter, erratic Peter, is the one coaching the church on how to be steadfast. And I would say, praise God. Look what he can do in our lives. Those of us who are all fallen and broken. Um, these, these, uh, these letters are um, estimated to have been written right around AD 64, 65, right in there. And while that might just sound like uh, meaningless information, one of the things that helps us understand is that he's writing at the peak of Nero's reign, Emperor Nero, who viciously persecuted Christians. And this helps us understand what the church is going through at the time so that the message makes sense that he uh, is writing to them. In fact, Peter himself is writing from a prison cell. He's at the end of his life. He believes his life will be taken from him. In fact, he says as much in the first chapter in verse 13. And he also tells us that the Lord, that Jesus, told him this would be the case. And we see that back in John chapter 21. So he's writing at the end of his life here. These are some of his last words to the church. Uh, the church he's writing to is kind of an unidentified group. It's not like the church in Thessalonica, or the church in Colossae or Ephesus. It's not named. Uh, but as we kind of look through the writings of both epistles, both letters, we can see he's writing predominantly to Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people. And uh, it seems particularly that he's writing to those who had been pushed out of Jerusalem because of the Roman persecution, particularly under Nero. And these folks have settled in what is kind of Asia Minor or uh, modern-day Turkey. And I brought a map. You guys like, anybody like maps? A few of you? I know, first service blew me away. I asked if they liked maps, and they almost yelled at me, yes! So <laughs> more maps may be coming. Yes, there we go. So you can see Jerusalem in the lower, far, uh, the, the lower right-hand corner and persecution had pushed them up to the north to this landmass known as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. You can see there are a lot of churches there uh, just, just south of Europe. So this is the region that he's writing to. First Peter is written largely to um, address sort of persecution and threats from outside the church. Converse to that, Second Peter is written to address threats from within the church, particularly the threat of false teaching. And the specific false teaching that was being circulated at the time was the assertion that there was no judgment of God and no second return of Christ. That's what some were teaching at, uh, at this particular time. And you can imagine the impact uh, that that would have uh, upon the faith. The implication, or at least one of them, was that there was no real, if, there, if there's no accountability and no judgment, let's do what we want. Let's live any way that we want. And so there was rampant Im, uh, immorality and licentious living. And, and you can see kind of what happens here. People didn't like an aspect of the faith and they tried to modify it to fit their sensibilities. We don't like judgment. Let's just pull that out. And we see where it had left things. Imagine if you would a country that has laws uh, but has no penalties. Or a workplace that has policies, but they're never enforced. Or imagine a family that has rules, but no consequences for breaking them. How would that go in your family? It wouldn't go well in ours. Imagine a church that worships a God who 
who provides no accountability or judgment for sin. So it doesn't take a genius to see that ultimately these institutions would be doomed to fail. Uh, We might not like penalties. We may not like consequences or accountability or even judgment. These are words with negative connotations. But they're necessary for the integrity of an institution or of a community. In fact, as I preached at Easter, we really, truly need to want, we do want the judgment of God. We want that to come because we want sin and evil to be purged from this world. I don't want to enter into eternity with sin running rampant. How about you? I want it destroyed. I mean, we we, we know the glitches that I just, I don't want to fall under judgment myself, but God has provided a way out. That we can take refuge from the coming wrath of God and God's given son. And then we can invite and be happy and glad that he will purge sin and evil from this world. In fact, if he doesn't do that, God is not good. So we truly want that. We truly need that. And we can actually see in what's going on with this particular group. If there is no coming judgment, if there is no accountability, then the faith is a mess. It's a mess. Uh, the book of Second Peter has three parts to it. And what's really nice is that it actually corresponds really nicely to the chapters that we have. That almost never happens. But in Second Peter, it does. So in the first chapter, we really see his encouragement to the church to cultivate a Christian character. Uh, secondly, and that's of course in contradiction to what the, those who are um, advocating immorality. The second part uh, in chapter 2, he specifically condemns the false teachers. And then he gives us some really good tools in the second chapter of how we can spot, spot false teachers. Not just by what they're saying, but by even some of their tactics and their nature. And that's going to be really helpful for us uh, as we kind of look around our world today too. And then last of all, he exerts and affirms his confidence in the Lord's return. Uh, we have any, any car people in this morning, people who love to tinker and modify your vehicles? Anybody? We've got a few sheepish hand raisers. You're like, I don't know. It depends on where you're going with this. If you're going to make fun of us, maybe not. Right? Uh, there are, of course, those who love to modify cars and kind of tweak things to try to get more horsepower out of it, right? Or to get more torque, or to get more off-road capability. And uh, it seems to me that almost invariably what ends up happening is they, they get one feature improved, so to speak, but they do so in a way that compromises the integrity of the vehicle as a whole, right? So I brought a few examples of that this morning, and I'll connect this in a second. Just a couple. Uh, so these Frankenstein modifications, as I'm calling them, uh, here's one. Anybody recognize this vehicle? Say it a little louder. I heard somebody over here. It's a Vega. It's the Chevy Vega. One of the worst cars that GM ever made. Just saying something. They had a terrible engine in these things. A little four-cylinder with aluminum heads and all kinds of problems. And so some people, I, I've heard one person call this the poor man's Nova, which I think is... <laughs> anyway, so they... They produce these, and some people would take the engine out of this thing and cram in there a small block Chevy 350. The problem is when you do that, you end up putting a stress and a strain on the drive lane, a drive line, the powertrain, and all the rest of it. And it's just the rest of the car is not built for that kind of horsepower. And I had a friend who did this, uh, and he said that 
uh, the engine produced so much heat that it began melting the components in the inside of the engine <laughs> compartment. So you see, there's one example. I'll, I'll give you another one here. The, the V, oh, come on up. There we go. Of course, this is a Volkswagen Beetle. And somebody, I don't even know what this is in the back end, but it's too much. <laughs> because any improvement over the whatever it is, 55 horsepower engine that's in there, is going to drive that thing faster and more powerfully than you can steer or brake. So you can do this modification, but you're going you're gonna to compromise the thing as a whole. Here's another one. This is my last one. Suspension upgrades, right? For those people who like to rock crawl. Here we go. Here's a couple. And you do something like this, and of course, they can get over great obstacles. But that's what parking at Fred Meyer looks like if, <laughs> yeah, if, you, have, if you do that. So these Frankenstein modifications can improve maybe one desired outcome only to kind of compromise the rest of the vehicle. And that is exactly what we see happening in the Christian faith by these false teachers. They don't like an aspect of it. So let's change this. Let's take this out. Let's take the return of the Lord and coming judgment. Let's strip it out of here to fit our sensibilities. That'll be a more palatable faith. Or will it? It had produced a gross and immoral life. And Peter is calling them back to what the Lord Jesus would have us do. Uh, it seems to me that throughout history, Christians have really had to battle for uh, what we might call a steadfast faith. A faith that's orthodox, that believes in God's word and really truly trusts in his promises. A faith that's patient and enduring even when the world is threatening. And a faith that resists the triumphalism that we've seen sometimes in the church. Where they're almost combative and without compassion. An enduring, steadfast faith. And this is what Peter is calling the church back to. To the basics. Believed and exercised with temperance and maturity and godliness. Faithful living in difficult times. And that's really the, the thread that runs throughout the book here. So look with me, 2 Peter 1. We're just looking at the first four verses today. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Uh, these first few verses here really answer a, an unasked question, which is, what is it that we have received in Christ? What is it that we have received? And first of all, we see that we have received this precious gift of salvation. And I would say it's very easy for us to take this for granted. Some of the most precious things in the world, we can easily forget how wonderful they are and we can sort of overlook them. Uh, for example, the beauty of the created world. You know, we can get up on a morning like this and see the mountains and their beauty. We can see the trees beginning to bloom and the melting snow, which is beautiful. <laughs> It's beautiful, not in an aesthetic way, but we rejoice that it's melting. 
But we can look around and we can see the beauty that God knit into the world and we can sort of just take it for granted. God didn't have to make a beautiful world. It could simply be mechanical. It could just look like a big warehouse. But he knit beauty into this world. We can take for granted the joy of, of having children, especially when they're teenagers. We used to think this was a good thing. Uh, we can take for granted that singleness is a gift from God, that it's not a bad thing, that it, that it has freedoms that God has, has given to it. In fact, I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, right? He says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you from all of this. Paul, the romantic. Singleness is a good thing. And some of you may be thinking, I'm tired of this and I don't like it. But Paul says it's actually preferable to marriage. And for those of us who have married and by God's grace have found a spouse, we can forget that it is also good and a primary agent of sanctification in our life. It's easy to overlook good things and the precious gift of salvation is something that's easy to overlook, especially if we have enjoyed it for a while. Another thing I want to draw your attention to is this, the, as the righteous aspect of it. In other words, God has transferred to us who have repented of sin and believed in Jesus. He has transferred to us the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that we ourselves haven't lived or haven't performed. He has done it for us. And what's wonderful about this too is not only is that righteousness imputed to us, transferred to us, but God does it without jeopardizing his own righteousness. Because he paid for sin in his own son. In other words, he didn't just verbally excuse it or dismiss it or look the other way as though it didn't happen. But sin was punished in Christ. Therefore, God grants us righteousness and is still himself righteous because sin was paid for. And this is something that Paul says in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. The righteousness of Jesus is transferred to those who believe, but God's own righteousness is in jeopardized in doing so. We have a precious salvation. It is a beautiful thing that God has done for us in Christ. And Paul bases the whole argument of his book, the starting point of everything that he's going to say, in that. We have received something precious in our salvation. Uh, this next part is where I'm going to anchor the, the most of my comments this morning. Um, that we have received the precious gift of salvation equally. Equally. And you might be thinking, what in the world, what do you mean by this? Um, not only is Peter drawing attention to how precious this gift is, but he wants us to see that what we have received is as precious as the salvation of even the apostles themselves. In other words, as he's writing to the church spread, spread out in Asia Minor, uh, in the particular area, he's telling them in sort of a comparative way, you have, you have received a faith as precious as ours, the apostles. And 
th- that might, you know, kind of seem sort of obvious to us and not like something that needs to be underscored, but there is a specific reason that Peter needed to emphasize this in this cultural context and in that particular time because, and I'll try not to glaze over here, there was a movement known as Gnosticism, okay? I know everyone went, oh, here we go. I'll try to make this quick. Gnosticism didn't fully emerge until the second century, but this particular teaching and movement, one of the things that they taught, among other things, was that, you, that there was a sort of special and elite class that could only know things only them themselves could know things, that they had sort of a special access to God, special knowledge. So they were sort of promoting a multi-tiered sort of arena of salvation as opposed to something that was possessed equally. And so Peter is correcting this. He's saying, no, you've received something, a salvation as precious as ours, even the apostles. So don't let anybody fool you into thinking something otherwise. He's reminding them that, that this is a wonderful gift, but that it is a gift that they have received equally. No hierarchy when it comes to salvation. God, if God has granted to us belief and faith, it is as precious and an equal honor as that of even the apostles. In fact, the Greek word here is isotimos, the, the word that's translated precious. And it's only used in the New Testament right here. Uh, but it was used regularly among that particular culture. It's a combination of two other words. Esos meaning same. Timos meaning honor or value. You have something precious. You have something of equal honor and value. And the way it was used culturally was to refer to those who had basically been given a new membership or citizenship in a new region. That they would be given all of the equal rights and privileges of, of their new citizenship. And so that's, what, that's the word that Peter grabs out of their culture and says, you have something precious of equal honor and equal value. And the implication for this, the reason that he's doing this again is to equip them with the truth and the confidence and to arm them against those who would try to teach something contrary so that they would not fall prey to false teachers. In other words, don't be bullied. Don't be insecure. Don't be intimidated. For those who would come in and proclaim some kind of an elite status or special knowledge or spiritual knowledge or special access to God. And so in doing this, this is one of the ways that Peter is protecting the church from false teaching. Uh, The Apostle Paul says something similar, and it's maybe a little more well known in Galatians 3. I'll read this to you quickly. It starts in verse 25. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. He's referring to the law there. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the Apostle Paul affirms that this salvation is is an equal honor uh, received all, by all believers in Christ as well. No second-class citizens, nobody missing some special knowledge or having limited access to God, not lacking anything. And one of the motivations, I think, for both Peter and Paul to give this kind of teaching is, especially with Peter, we see that he's at the end of his life. He's in prison. He, he's, his life's going to be taken from him. They have been leading the church in its infancy, in its early stages. 
And just like parents, you know, before you release your kids to college or whatever, you want to make sure they've got everything that they need to know so that they can succeed in life. And now as we see this fraternity of apostles at the end of their life and dying off, they are equipping the church such that they would survive on their own, even with the false teachers that are running around among them. And I want to say this too. This isn't just something that was happening back then. There are movements today that try to assert the same kinds of things. One of them that's alive and well today that we've, we've tried to confront often to you is this group called NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. You've heard a lot about this, and I've cited two books in your notes if you want to uh, read up on it a little bit. But this is one of the teachings of this movement. They would affirm that there are, they would falsely affirm that there are modern-day apostles and prophets who speak with the authority of Scripture. This is almost like a new version of Gnosticism, that they have a special knowledge, that somehow only they have access to God, and we have to listen to the words that they, that they say they themselves. And, and so we can see this same kind of teaching that Peter and Paul are giving us here, it's important for us to know so that we would be protected from false teachers uh, in our day and age as well. well. Let's move on here. What else have we received? We have received grace and peace from God. Uh, this is a common greeting in the scriptures, but just because it's common doesn't mean that it's without significance. Uh, we know, of course, that it is God's grace that he rescues sinners, that he has given us his son. But this grace that he has extended to us produces something in our lives. It produces peace. It produces peace with him, and it produces peace in our own life. Grace leading to peace. Or as I've said it in other times, it is the gospel that gives us our lives back. Sin has stolen life from us. You know, as, as Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so the gospel of, of Jesus Christ produces in us not just eternal salvation, that's glorious, but it produces life, abundant life in the here and now. It gives us our lives back, which has previously been forfeited and frittered away in sin and destructive practices. Grace and peace to you is not just a clumsy greeting here. It is a prayer that Paul or that Peter really wants these folks to experience in their lives as they pursue these Christian virtues which is not pulling us away from pleasures and joy, but giving us real and lasting joy. And as Peter continues on in this first chapter, uh, we'll, we'll see some of that more and more. Um, but again, the other thing that I think is fascinating here is that this grace and peace is not, he's not saying that it's, it's available through some mysterious or esoteric knowledge such as the Gnostics uh, taught. But he says, he shows us that it's embedded in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's something practical and specific. There's a person that we can look to and see and understand what this grace and peace looks like lived out. Um, in fact, I would say this. There are many today in the church, unfortunately, disappointingly to me, there are many today in the church who really resent a Christianity that involves knowledge or using one's mind or intellect. And that bothers me, and it ought to bother you, because that is not the Christianity presented to us in the scriptures. 
Christian faith is thoroughly one of knowledge. Knowledge embedded in the person of Jesus Christ, not just random esoteric knowledge. Look what he says in verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Through what? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we have been given, we have received, this is our next point, we have received everything that we need for life and godliness. This is my wife's favorite verse, or one of her favorite verses, and we talk about this a lot. What all does that mean? So I better do justice to this one, or she'll wag her finger at me. Actually, this summer, um, Amy and I, with some friends, are gonna, we're going to go and, and hike the Chilkoot Trail. Uh, any of you ever done that before? Look at that. Awesome. Talk to me afterwards. <laughs> uh, I'm anxious to hear more about this. In fact, there was an interesting uh, aspect in sort of the history of this trail, and that was before you could right, cross over the pass and enter into Canada, you had to demonstrate that you had all of the provisions that they felt you would need heading into the new area, right? Do you know how much it weighed? Anybody? One ton. A literal ton. Not a metaphorical ton. A ton. A real ton. And you had to produce this ton of supplies and goods at the border before they would let you in. Um, although I was kind of looking at the list, and the first thing on the list that I looked at said 150 pounds of bacon. <laughs> uh, that sounds all right. You know, that's a hiking trip worth going on right there. Uh, but you had, to, you had to bring this uh, uh, across, or you had to demonstrate that you had all of these supplies. You could even hire people to kind of help pack it up, the golden staircase. And I figure um, that's what my wife is going to do. I'm going to end up hiking her stuff up the golden care, uh, staircase like one of these packers. But in similar fashion here, Peter is encouraging the believers who have been persecuted, pushed out of Jerusalem, away from the temple, out in this new territory, sort of new citizens there, and who are coming under attack now of false teachers after all of that. And he's encouraging them, now you have all of the resources that you need to be where God has put you. You have all of the resources you need for life and godliness. It has been given to you. It has been, in fact, knit into you through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to saving faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, and he seals us in the family of God. And his ministry to us is profound. He not only affirms to us that we belong to him, but he gives us power for obedience that we did not yet, or we did not previously have. And he illuminates to us the scriptures such that we can understand them and obey them. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. I, I think there are some Christians today who can feel somewhat insecure about their faith and they, they might have some excuses or some frustrations like, I've never been to you know, Bible college or, or I've never been to seminary or I have difficulty even reading my Bible. Uh, or I, I'm not a great speaker. Uh, or I have a past and I have some baggage, man, if you only knew. Uh, 
And I don't mean to be dismissive about training or about school or education because I value it highly. But the Bible says we've been given everything that we need. I think about uh, the disciples in Acts in chapter 4. There's this great moment uh, where some outsiders looked upon them and saw their ministry and saw what they were doing and teaching. Acts 4.13 says when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's what Jesus had produced in them. That's what their proximity to him and their knowledge of him and who he was had produced in their lives. It astonished onlookers. It's one of the reasons I love A.W. Tozer so much. He was one of my favorite authors, as you know. Not only is he a great author, and he writes short books, which I like, but Tozer was an uneducated fellow. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to Bible school. And interestingly enough, it's his writings that are actually now read in seminary and Bible schools. But Tozer was one who took the Lord seriously. He took the revelation of God seriously. He devoted himself to the reading of Scripture and through steadily praying that the Holy Spirit would give him understanding of the text. In fact, Tozer uh, frequently was found in his office laying face down on the floor with his head in the scriptures. His secretary notes this, that she would find him in this posture. He would be begging God to help him understand the scriptures. And I will tell you, no kidding, that's like a weekly prayer for me. <laughs> God, help me. What is going on here? And by his grace and through his Holy Spirit, he does. He answers those prayers. One of the other things I love about Tozer was uh, he was a man of prayer. In fact, he had uh, in his office, in his study, he had an extra pair of pants. These were his prayer pants. And he had patched knees on them. And, you know, before going to the scriptures, he would switch out his trousers and drop to the floor and pray. God, help me to know you and to know you through your word. The Bible affirms to us we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. And that is good news. That is good news. Uh, finally here, uh, or not quite finally, but nearly, we received wonderful promises. Now, I'm just going to touch on this quickly. Uh, the promises that are mentioned here, it's kind of hard to see from just this one point. What he's talking about are promises that are, I hate to use the fancy theological word, eschatological Referring to the end times, he's saying the Lord will come back. The Lord will judge. These are precious promises. These are good things. These are things to delight in, not to be afraid of and to strip out of the faith. He has given us precious promises. That's what he's referring to. And as we go on in the, in the book, you'll kind of see that get unpacked a little bit. Um, but then lastly here, we have received participation in the divine nature. What does that mean? I'm going to have to get a, another pair of trousers this week and pray that one over. What do you mean by that, Lord? Do we become little gods? The answer is no. Uh, but I'm going to unpack it next week, so you'll have to come back to see what this means. What does it mean that we participate in the divine nature? So in closing, remember what you've received, church. You have received a precious gift of salvation through the righteousness of Christ. This precious gift of salvation is something that we have received equally, even on par with that of the apostles. There's no elite class. 
we have received through his grace peace, not just in eternity, but in this earthly life. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. God has put it right into us. He's given us wonderful promises. And we don't need to strip them out of the scriptures because they're uncomfortable to us. They're good. They're wonderful. They are truly precious. And we will participate in the divine nature, whatever that means. But you'll have to come back. So would you pray with me? Father, we don't want to be like those who would seek to modify the faith to fit our own sensibilities. Uh, We don't want to create a Frankenstein out of this thing. May we rejoice in what we've been given. May we be content to know that it is enough, that your grace is truly enough for us. Lord, may we be willing to take you for who you are, and not to fashion for ourselves a God that is unworthy of worship. We pray that we might know you better, not through esoteric knowledge, but by real knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Scriptures. Help us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to know you, to love you, and to love those that you love. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.